Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores the puzzles, challenges, transformations, and opportunities of our acceleratingly weird world. This week, I have the pleasure of sharing with you a conversation with David Weinberger of the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Technology, a philosopher and an author of several books, including the latest, Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. Needless to say, these kinds of questions are directly in the center of my thematic bullseye for this show. And it was a lot of fun to sit down with David back in May. David, I apologize for taking so long to get this episode out. But it seems, as with all things, that if there is any lapse between recording and publication, the topics of these calls only get more imminent, resonant, and obvious. And this call is no exception. If you've been listening to Future Fossils for a while, you know how the question of the black box machine learning algorithm and, in general, the implications of AI to the way that we live, the way that we practice science and art and philosophy, these questions come up again and again on the show. And although I'm not exactly proud to admit this, they usually reflect the tension and the anxiety of our rapidly reorienting zeitgeist in this regard. One of the things I love about this conversation with David is his skill with a rhetorical technique that I often use myself, although strangely not in this category. He takes this situation that we believe to be radically new and qualitatively different from everything that has come before, and he embeds it in a continuous big history that shows how the promise and peril of these profound new tools really just only amplify or democratize philosophical questions we've been facing for the entire history of humankind. Are we going to have to change the way we make stories about what it is that we know and how we know it? Yeah. But are those stories going to be more honest, more authentic than they have been? Also, probably yes. I found David and his book, Everyday Chaos, to be a very refreshing and realistic, although also hopeful look at the outcome of this phase transition. But before we get into this talk, I just want to thank everyone who has been supporting this show on Patreon, including this week's newest supporter, Joshua Crowley. Thanks so much, Joshua, and to everyone else who has been helping me keep this show independent and ad-free over the last three years. Perks that went out to Future Fossils Patreon supporters this week include the hour-and-a-half book club call recording we had from last Sunday about Lu Cijin's amazing work of science fiction, The Three-Body Problem, which addresses as science fiction a lot of the same questions that David and I discuss in this conversation. Coming soon to the Patreon feed, uh, new original music that I have labored on in the studio for over a year, new stickers, and also new phone wallpapers and other digital art goodies 
from my recent human machine collaboration. Of course, I also post a ton of stuff on that feed for everyone publicly. So even if you don't have a few bucks to throw down on this show every month, please head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and help yourself to all of the stuff I have released there under a Creative Commons license for the benefit of whomever happens to find it. We'll be doing another book club call in a couple weeks, and we have some awesome episodes coming up, including shows with Kevin Kelly, Eric Davis, the hosts of Weird Studies podcast. So I hope you'll subscribe if you haven't already. And that's all for now. Thanks a lot for sticking through this and enjoy this fascinating conversation with David Weinberger about everyday chaos and thriving in an age of accelerating complexity. David, it's a pleasure having you on Future Fossils. It's great to be here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this book, Everyday Chaos, Technology, Complexity, and How We're Thriving in a New World of Possibility. I, I, you know, I, I mentioned to people uh, on Twitter today that this book so neatly overlaps with the kind of thinking that I've been giving these topics, but you do so in a way that is very approachable that is very, I think, suited to, a, you, you know, an audience that doesn't have, you know, a stance in philosophy or the study of technology like you obviously do. And for that, I applaud you because these are not simple ideas. So thanks for writing this book, first of all. <laughs> sure. I mean, I have the advantage of not knowing very much, so I can't, uh, I, I simply can't befuddle readers with the depth of my uh, knowledge in either technology or philosophy for that matter <laughs> you know I, i'm a writer so well to that extent i mean you know you've been a writer in residence at google a senior researcher at harvard's berkman klein center for internet and society i think you you might be selling yourself a little short but i am i'm not well here we'll to... just see about that michael we'll just see about that <laughs> that sounds like a challenge to me yeah well you know this is a, this is an interesting thing because i think you know one of the maybe the core theme of this book is that our technologies, specifically machine learning have plunged us into an age where the sort of abstract philosophical matter of what it is to know a thing and how, you know, how we understand the relationships between things and the sort of fundamental mystery at the root of our knowledge is now front and center in society. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from you why you ch why you felt the desire to write this book, why you felt like this particular shift in our framing was or is so important. Well, that's actually a really nice uh, presentation of what the book is about. I wish I were taking notes. That would have been really <laughs> it's <awful>. on record. <laughs> OK, good. Um, so the book started out one way, and then it became, then it went another way. Because I, 
in the sense of actually writing a, a book, you know, doing research and, and writing, it took at least six years. In terms of the topics that I that this talks about, uh, it's it these are topics that I've been interested in basically forever. It started out fundamentally as a book about a change in how the future happens or how we think the future happens. Interest of mine since at least grad school, and I would say, I'd certainly say before as well. I was co-director of a, of the Harvard Library Innovation Lab for um, you know four four or five years, and it was a set of developers, still is a set of developers who um, at that point were free to come up with whatever innovative project they wanted, and my project was to oversee the building of a an, an open platform for the Harvard Library for the metadata that about the contents of that library, which are you know vast, it's a great library. And so I, I spent a few years working on this uh, open platform called Library Cloud, and it just really impressed upon me how weird it is that people build open platforms. I am thoroughly in favor of it, but it, it's like so much on the internet. It's just a great thing to do. But it's really bizarre. It flies in the face of so many assumptions that we've had, in some cases for thousands of years. Um, but we just go ahead with it as if it's nothing. And the book in, it started out as an exploration of some of those internet weirdnesses, um, especially with regard to what I thought and still think is a change in how we, we approach the future and how, um, how we think the future works. But at the same time, I was getting really interested in AI and in particular machine learning, which seemed to me to be sort of finishing the job that the internet was doing uh, um, in terms of how we think about the future. So let me, I actually haven't said uh, <laughs> what I think that change is. So here's the spoiler. I, I spilled the guts in the first chapter, so uh, no spoiling going on here. The thing that impressed me about platforms is, is a really straightforward thing. I mean, it's a really obvious thing fundamentally what they do, which is to take some set of data and services that uh, a library or a company or an organization is offering on, over the internet and makes them available to anybody on the web who wants to use them. Some developers, typically, this is, these are open APIs, with the idea that, uh, well, we don't know what people are going to do with it. So let's, therefore, let's make it. That conjunction is, is really unusual in, in our history. We don't know what people are going to use it for, so let's go to so some real trouble and expense in order to make and maintain this thing. And it's not just open APIs, but so much of what we, is, so much that's distinctive of the internet and that we take for granted on the internet has the same characteristic of seeing virtue and benefit in not anticipating what will happen and setting up the conditions by which unexpected things can happen. And this is, in effect, purposefully making the world less predictable. And that's really not how we have proceeded for you know thousands of years we did the opposite. Uh, in fact, sort of a paleolithic strategy um, has been to, and the basic strategy that we've had is to anticipate what the future is going to be, 
and then make preparations to take advantage of it. You know, anticipate and prepare. Obviously, we still do that. We'll always do that because otherwise you don't look both ways when you cross the street and you die pretty quickly. But here we had an environment in which they're seen in multiple different ways to offer benefit to holding back from anticipating and even from sort of unanticipating what will happen. So open platforms are one example, minimum, minimal viable products are another where you, you purposely do not try to anticipate everything that your market is going to want from your product and ship it with the fewest features uh, that people will pay for and find useful. Open source, open access. I mean, the things that are game modding, I mean, back to the early 1980s, this is maybe the earliest just on PCs. Anyway, you know, commercial games would one way or another permit or sometimes even encourage and enable users to create new versions of the game, new maps for the game, new rules for the game. All of this is obvious. It's all, I think, obviously really good and helpful, but it's not obvious in our history. This is, and it changes, I think, our ideas about how we succeed, how we move forward, not just by anticipating, but there's real value in, in sort of holding back from, from unanticipating. Yeah, you... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no go ahead. I was going to say, ahead. you know, you do a, a good job in this book of laying out the history of prediction in the first couple of chapters. And, and you know, obviously this notion that prediction requires us to have some but not total knowledge, you know, enough that we can we feel that we can identify regularities, that these regularities led to the the uh, the creation of universal laws and that. At some point, we, you know, it's starting as as you did with the the three body problem, Edmund Haley's request of Newton to help him track this comet, and that even three bodies in an age before computers was too many, and that that was sort of the thin end of this wedge that led us to where we are today, where you know machine learning as a tool is capable of these extraordinary predictions that are essentially theoryless, that we don't have an abstracted explanation for how this is actually how this prediction is actually making any sense. And it and it's hard for us to extrapolate from one prediction to another simply because there are so many factors. And so that specific thing, I think, sort of the our increasing knowledge of the immense complexity of the world that we abstract into these cause and effect just so stories basically um it's an elegant history that you have here about you know the centuries of thinking that led to the notion that laws are not necessarily the most accurate way of describing reality and i would love to yeah you know you give a great example with a b testing and i'd love to hear you lay that a little bit out because i think that that forms a a sort of a philosophical basis for the rest of the kinds of questions that you bring up in this yeah so um so a b testing and all the stuff i was just saying about unanticipation are internet phenomena and in both cases um i'll, I'll get to a b testing in just a second our, our comfort with not anticipating the future in all of these different ways that we do on, on the internet. And one, in fact, could say that the internet itself, the, the thing that makes it the internet is that it, it is a vehicle for interoperability, for enabling pieces to work together without 
having to know ahead of time what other systems they're going to be used in. That's the internet allows this sort of vast sharing of data of all kinds without knowing uh, ahead of time what what it's going to be used for. This gets us, I think, comfortable with operating, has gotten us comfortable with operating in an environment uh, without always knowing how things are going to work. In fact, holding back from from knowing how things are going to be used. That's what you know, anticipation tries to run ahead and figure out what's going to happen. Unanticipation says, uh, you know, no, actually, we get more benefit if we just throw open this world, whether it's, you know, games or it's open platforms or open source or whatever. We will all do better if we just throw this open because we don't know what's going to be done with it. And A-B testing uh, is, you know, widely used on the Internet uh, because it's very effective and it's very cheap as uh, I don't know who knows what. So um, just to be clear, in A-B testing, a marketer puts up two, sometimes more, um, two versions of an ad that often have very slight differences. So it might be that in one, the model is on the left, the other model, the model is on the right, or the background is green instead of red or whatever. So tweaks. And you show that to the first, I don't know, 100,000 people who come by in, in a scaled environment, and you just see which ad gets more clicks. And if one gets 2% more clicks, well, good, you just made 2% more money, and you go with that one. The thing that's, I think, remarkable about A-B testing is that there, as far as I know, there are no theories about what those small random-like changes should be when you're putting up an ad. So you put up an ad for your indoor barbecue, and it shows a skinny guy on the right flipping burgers. And uh, it turns out that that gets 2 or 3% more clicks than having a, a skinny guy on the left turning hot dogs. So you go with one, but nobody tries to come up with a theory that says, okay, um, when you're selling barbecues, make sure you put the skinny model, a skinny model on the right with the burger. There's no reason to, because you don't know if the next day you're doing a related ad, let's say for an outdoor barbecue. Was the first one an indoor barbecue? In any case, you know, it's a related, related ad. And you don't know that the same variations are going to have the same effect. You also don't know, I think... The world is a different world tomorrow. We don't know and nobody cares because the economics of it are such that just run another A-B test. And that's, it's a, you know, and we don't even bother trying to derive general rules of it. So this, I think, also this is an indication. It both gets us used to and indicates our com- increasing comfort with proceeding without even bothering to try to come up with an hypothesis. And it may be that in this case, the factors that influence the 2% difference, the delta of 2%, are um, so complex and small and interrelated and transient that, you know, we're not going to know what those things are anyway. And we don't even have to bother. Just run, run another ad, another AB ad. Well, why would you want to understand? Just, you know, well, abstractly, maybe you do. But there may not be a general law of left or right placement of barbecue ads. So this is this is an interesting place here. You know, I think a lot about what it is that we're doing with science and what it is that we're we're trying to do with science. And the world that you're painting in this book is a world in which the goal of science that I was taught that I grew up with believing was was this destination of 
human intellectual enterprise was a theory of everything, a th- you know, a, a single cognitive framework, vast and unifying and capable of explaining the puzzling diversity of phenomena. But it's, but, you know, you're making a pretty strong case here that what's, what's happening is that the more variables we realize have some meaningful influence you know the you you spend a lot of time in this book invoking chaos theory and stuff like the this you know the so-called butterfly effect this notion that that these uh there there are these small differences that lead to enormous uh effects through these cascades across scales and that you know, at least my understanding of chaos theory is that we're living in a deterministic universe that Lorenz, who you know, put out this sort of notion about the butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil, causing a hurricane in Texas back in the 70s. Lorenz was convinced that we're living in a deterministic cosmos, but a cosmos about which our imperfect knowledge makes our ability to model it deterministically futile and i feel like you're taking it even a step further in this book and you're you're suggesting you know your chapter four is beyond causality (laughs) so i mean what do you see as the promise that science in the 21st century can actually keep here well that's you know that's an easy question i'm terrified of this entire topic um because I 100% do not want to be taken as saying that theory is not necessary, that theories are all wrong, that science should give up. I mean, I, I like science, and especially these days, I want more and more and more of it. So, on the other hand, um, let, let me give, I will give the spoiler for chapter four, because beyond causality is a pretty daunting, it's hard to de- deliver on that, and uh, now that when when you read it back to me, I realize just <laughs> <laughs> the impossible promise that make. And the, that chapter is about interoperability, um, so it's it's not going to deliver on some grand theory of causality. Instead, the chapter I, I will get to your question, which terrifies me in a second. Just to finish off about it, <laughs> take your time. Though. This is a nonlinear show for yeah. sure. Oh, good. <laughs> the book talks about interoperability, the use of. Uh, a piece designed for one system in other systems where it, its uses are not anticipated as, uh, first of all, a fundamental property of the internet, and second of all, as being hugely generative, to use the, the phrase that Jonathan Zittrain at the, at the Berkman Klein Center that I'm at has used. And it's a very, a world that is characterized by interoperability is very, it, it's the same world but our view of it and what counts and what we look to in trying to understand or to not understand things. I think the key difference is that with causality, causality, we know basically how things causally interact. I mean, Newton was pretty good at that and it's gotten only better since then, more precise and more accurate and fuller. But Newton was discovering laws. We'll get to laws in a second. With interoperability, we can make up our own laws for how things interact. And we do this all the time. It's a fundamental action on the internet of, uh, um, is to design how we want two pieces of data or two you know, represent, uh, images or whatever, um, how we want an image to interact with our email system. Do we want to allow, when you drag it in, what's going to happen? 
Is it going to embed in the email or be attached, right? All of the rules of interaction, we get to design in the, this digital world. That sense, I think, may be changing our view out into the world overall. So that's the only sense of beyond causality. I don't have a super causality theory, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I forgot to be Newton. That was my problem. So I would be very distressed if uh, what I say in the book was taken, especially by ill-spirited people, as permission to beat up on or disregard science. That would be, I would be very, very unhappy if that's what people took away uh, from the book. I, I, so I don't want to dispute the existence of laws and of theories that are both useful and elegant, but they're not the only things in the world. So you can have, a, and I'm going to go back to the three-body problem, which is as, uh, which was so complex that Newton just didn't want to spend the time on it because he, uh, he had other things to think. Um, this was just, Haley wanted to know if um, the thing that he thought was comet when it would be coming back if it were a comet, which required computing the, the path through some Saturn and, um, and Jupiter and uh, the sun also exerting its pull. So you can, you can mechanically figure that out. And some French aristocrats actually spent a summer doing that. They built a table um, and just recomputed, recomputed, recomputed um, in order to, uh, and, and basically they succeeded at it, uh, figuring out when the comet would reappear. But, it's not really a three-body problem. It's an everybody problem because as Newton knew better than anybody since he's the one who formulated this, all things, all, all masses, everything with gravity affects everything else, every other mass. I mean, it's, um, but we don't care about the action of distant stars when trying to figure out what month Halley's Comet is going to return. Um, so we ignore it. It's totally proper. But that the reality is everything is interacting with everything else all the time. We just couldn't, we didn't need to account for it because, you know, the comets are pretty, you don't need all that tiny amount of uh, gravitational pull to, to factor that in. And we couldn't handle hugely complex problems like that, huge collections of influences. But now we can. We can't handle the entire entire universe, and I'm not thinking now about um, about three body problems or you know, uh, paths of, of large objects. But in the course of our daily lives, we have now systems, machine learning systems, that handle way more data than a human uh, a human brain can, or even three French aristocratic brains can over the course of the summer, um, and can find relationships that we otherwise would not have found. Those relationships may well be governed by laws just the way when you walk down a street and uh oh, like this. i'm sorry i'm, I'm ram rambling badly <laughs> we have, so uh, let me let me back up and try to start from the other end we have grown up with a particular model uh in mind that we, we were taught which is to understand something that there's a handful of laws that happen to be simple enough for human beings to understand that govern the behavior of, of the universe. Therefore, when we think about what's, how to explain things and what the real, what's re real about the world, we tend often, I think, to think about large principles. And we do this um, when thinking about you know, uh, physical causality. 
but we also do it in other realms as well. We have a long tradition of thinking about morality, morality in terms of large principles, eternal principles, because we like these laws to be eternal, at least in the West we do. Um, and meanwhile, all that's, all that's, I think, right and true. I'm not going to dispute it. I wouldn't, don't, I wouldn't and couldn't and shouldn't that. Nevertheless, when you go to work in the morning, you cannot predict that the person next to you on the subway is going to be wearing a Beyonce t-shirt. And you can't predict that when you um, get, you can't predict exactly when, when the train's going to get there. You can get an approximation, but you can't predict it exactly or exactly where it stops. So, you know, exactly. Uh, so the door is directly in front of you and you get to work. You don't know if the coffee is going to be hot or not. You don't know if there's going to be any left or if somebody broke the canister last night and there's no coffee. You don't know that one of your colleagues is going to show up with sniffles or with a new sweater. I mean, everything, everything in our lives, we don't know and, and basically cannot predict. But our picture of the world has been, until I think recently, it's simple and law-like. That can be true, and yet our experience isn't like that. The picture that chaos theory paints, I, th I think, is a far, far more accurate and realistic picture of our lives. That's what I think maybe will be happening, in part thanks to, in part thanks to the our plunging into the chaotic world of it, the internet and both profiting from it and really, really liking it. And from the new sort of model that machine learning gives us, it may be that we'll be able to better validate our own experience. And instead of writing off everything that happens in our lives as a series of accidents, some happy, some not happy, most indifferent, we'll be able to more firmly say, oh, yeah, this is life. The chaos is the life. And, and the laws, are they're real, they're helpful, but they actually don't govern as much of our lives as, as we used to think. Mm, yeah, you know, there's, there is something in this book that seems very resonant with a piece that I'm, I'm frequently invoking on this show that uh, Kevin Kelly wrote for his blog years ago on the expansion of ignorance the notion that that every scientific question answered raises numerous follow-up questions and so we're actually like in some sense what we're really doing here is expanding the known unknown expanding the area of our admitted ignorance and that we're you know that the exponential curve of knowledge is being uh, outpaced by an even steeper exponential curve of mystery you know, a confrontation with the unknowability of our world. And, you know, that I find, you know, your work really humble in that it's, it's actually probably one of the only things I've ever seen that you seem not to lose sleep at night about the fact that we don't really understand what's going in, what's going on inside so-called under the hood of uh, a high high performing deep learning algorithm like the AlphaGo algorithm that beat the world go masters you know like that a lot of people nowadays myself included i think have been preoccupied with a concern that and i mean and there are you know there are to be fair, there are real sort of social implications for deploying algorithms that we don't understand, especially when those algorithms are assisting in the decision making or making the decisions 
uh, for us in, you know, in terms of who gets screened at the airport security line, who get, you know, how long your sentence is uh, when you're, you know, sentenced, uh, you know, to some sort of, you know, criminal justice uh, conclusion that these, you know, the fact that we don't understand how these things do achieve the results that they do is to, I think the sort of modern reason enlightenment self-authoring kind of uh, personality deeply disturbing. And it seems like, you know, that we're, we're at a point now where if we, if we have an algorithm that finds a new mathematical proof that we don't understand and we have to write another algorithm to help us translate the inner workings of the first algorithm that we're just creating this this system where we're back to uh oracle of delphi type you know we we don't we don't uh, you know we're just consulting the magic box and yet uh, you make a really good case that this is this is actually a more authentic relationship to our dizzyingly complicated world, and and also that that it's uh, approaching the world this way almost seems like uh, like the wisdom of biomimicry, because it seems as though this type of process, um, and I'm really curious, you know, whether you you know what you think about this in in a sort of a, a broader picture beyond the story of the human historical development of technology. But it seems as though this kind of emphasis on interoperability and on uh, emergence rather than on the, you know, the anticipation and the control of a law-like world, that this is the difference that we have traditionally assigned to human intelligent design of the world of our artificial objects and, and institutions and so on, and how evolution itself works as a blind improvisational pro process that is highly dependent on recombination and remix and, uh, you know, like Stephen Jay Gould's delicious word for this exaptation, you know, taking something out of that initial context of its origin and and into some new context where it demonstrates some powerful, new, surprising properties. So, like, I guess, first of all, do you think that we are that we're dispensing with a sort of foolish if not outright harmful, harmfully wrong way of looking at the world in this transition. And, and then also, you know, how do you understand it in, in terms of this sort of bigger story about how we see nature, quote unquote, processing information and generating novelty in the same kind of a way? Maybe that's too big of a question, but you can bite any piece of it and I'd be happy. Uh, it's yeah, no, it's it's too big for me. Uh, so I'm going to go back towards the beginning of what you were talking about, which you really, really interestingly put. So I really like the work of Andy Clark, a Scottish philosopher, contemporary. I guess with the name Andy probably is in 17th century, 
uh, he's also he's a philosopher and he's a computer scientist and the, um, he's actually his work has become very influential. It's a great New Yorker article about him from a few months ago. So that's they don't do a lot of profiles of philosophers. And he says this, my philosophical, you know, my dissertation was on Heidegger and Clark sort of starts with from that standpoint and says something that just seems so obvious as soon as he says it, but wasn't obvious to me until he said it. I mean, I reacted thinking, yeah, no, that's right. And then realized I didn't know that before he said it, <laughs> which is the best sort of insight, I think. So he, he says, we think out in the world with, with our tools. And if you take tools away from people, they're the tools they use for thinking, take, uh, they, can't do their, they can't think. You take the whiteboard away from the physicist and she can't do her work. You take the um, abacus away from, you know, the, from the merchant at one point and he can't do his sums. You take away paper and the poet can't write. Uh, we, we think out in the world with tools. There's no shame in this. It sounds like as to some people, I think it sounds demeaning. Um, but it does mean that we are not locked in our own heads with thoughts trying to uh, figure out the world. No, this is something that we do with tools. And now we have new tools. Um, and I think a lot of what I've written over the past 25 years is about what happens to how we think when we have these new tools. The first new tool being the Internet and the second new tool now being machine learning. Machine learning is, is in fact, I think, it, um, inexplicable machine learning, and obviously not all of it is inexplicable. So let's, say, let's say black box, because it's simpler to say. Hmm. Black box machine learning has this pretty unusual possibility. You mentioned the Oracle of Delphi. That, the, the Oracle also had this, this characteristic, which is you can't interrogate it. You know, it, our other machines, including our machines for thinking, something goes wrong, you can take it apart, look at it, and probably figure out what went wrong. You can debug a computer program. Black box computing, when it's working, when, it, when it's working and you want to know how it works, by definition, you, you can't. Now, there is, I understand there is controversy among computer scientists. Many of them uh, say that we have inexplicability on, on the run, and it's just sort of a temporary problem here at the dawn. <laughs> oh, I, I, <laughs> I'm surprised you're laughing. I mean, it just sounds. I mean, to anybody who listens to this show, I think they'll, you know, just like, I think that's just a a, a pitiable perspective, frankly. I, I mean, you 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 address the paradox of being able to predict more and more effectively, and also being sort of less and less willing to anticipate, and more and more and more needing to hedge our bets. You know, I think that that's. That's the real trend that I see here. And so anybody who's who's convinced that we're going to chase down uh, the last sort of squiggles here is fooling themselves. Uh, just not not honest with what we know about neuroanatomy and so on. But anyway, it's I, well, I, so I um, the, I want to be sure I'm being clear. I'm talking about machine learning, not human brains. Oh, totally. Of course. But I mean, it's it's you know, you talk about Heidegger. It has more to do with you know, the, the inaccessibility of some true thing about the object itself, instead of the way that these objects appear to us, you know, like I think that the, the black box machine learning is an instance uh, where we're, we're being forced to c 
confront and reconcile the the vast unconscious of which you know the 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 knowable world is just sort of the visible tip right so i i i, I don't mean to conflate those things but i do think that I, I, I th- yeah i am not a computer scientist i don't have a what is it dog in the race a pony in the race dog in the fight i don't know um and these are people that <laughs> i respect and i i my untutored guess which is not even worth uttering but i will anyway is that i sort of think that it's um going to come down to that we will continually make progress in coming up with explanations that do the job that we need but i think the note the definition of what constitutes an explanation is going to be a moving target so we'll say well we've explained i'll give you an example in a second but we'll say okay well no new technique now we've explained this black box and there will be some truth in, in, in that, but it depends upon what you count as, uh, as an explanation. I think that it may come down to a metaphysical sense, a belief that the world is just such a place that there are a handful of laws and forces suffice to explain everything that happens versus a belief in, I mean, I want to say again, I, of course I believe in, in the laws that science um, discovers, but they are not enough to explain what goes on because of the complexity of the starting positions of the objects in the universe. This is, you know, Laplace's demon, right? Um, yeah, go into uh, this. This is a great part of the book where you yeah, I would love to. Well, so Laplace was another unbelievable genius, like Newton, and was called the Newton of France, but I think in French. So I won't, I won't try to do my French accent for you. He, incredible genius, um, and among other things, he sort of drew the conclusion that that Newton didn't want drawn for theological reasons, which is if you knew the position of every every item in the entire universe and its acceleration and the rest of it you could apply newton's simple laws in order to predict what the next state of the universe would be and you could do this repeatedly um, and thus have a completely predictable universe and you could do it backwards as, as well you could read off how we got here and i mean philosophically i i you know, I think there are iffy things about this, but I think the fundamental <laughs> point is right. You know, that uh, th- that is, yeah, well, I'll, I'll go with that. I think the fundamental point is right. It would take that sort of demon, um, all-knowing God, in order to do it. It's not a possibility for us. But yeah, so underneath, it, underneath the chaos, there may well be, I'm happy to believe that there are universal laws that are governing each movement of each thing. And conceptually, that's appealing. Practically, of course, it it's, doesn't help us because we are not omniscient creature, creatures. The world is just too complex. Um, there's also, I think, a, I'm not sure if, if Laplace's demon knows about nonlinearity, um, but probably, w- yeah, would account for that as well. Newton didn't want to go down that path um, because Newton was a very, very faithful person. And he did not like the idea of a universe in which there really was no need for God once God wound up the clock. You know, 
everything's in place, the laws are in place, and he can just he can just retire and watch. And that having a god who's not actively involved in the universe was just a very was an unacceptable idea to him. I mentioned in the book that um, Newton speculates it's nothing more than sort of an idle thought um, that maybe comets, which were a very interesting phenomenon at the, at the time, served a served a purpose, a divine purpose, because the beautiful elliptical orbits, because of the uh, the tug of everything in the universe on the planets, they eventually uh, would go out of orbit. And so maybe a comet, maybe God throws a comet now and then at precisely the right, uh, you know, right way, the right curve in order to tug the planets back into their proper elliptical orbits. He did not, you know, he didn't put this forward as a scientific theory, but it, it passed his mind. He was struggling to find a way to keep God in the picture. Laplace was a famous atheist. And so no need for a God, you just need the machine. I don't think you have to deny the machine to say, well, first of all, that's not how we live our lives because we're not, we're not a demon who knows everything. The demon is not evil in this case. It's, I think, instead of having to call this person, this thing a god, which would be slightly blasphemous, perhaps. Anyway, um, you can believe that there is a sort of mechanical, there, there are laws and there's stuff, and still say we need to leave room for the particular and for what for what we call the accidental, because that is the stuff of our lives. Now, before I go on, sorry, I just want to, I do want to, I think it's really important to take seriously the danger that you brought up using machine learning systems, which almost by their nature are going to be biased because they're learning from data. That data reflects social conditions and our societies are horribly biased in all sorts of ways. And so, yeah, machine learning learns those biases unless you intervene and are very careful in a number of different, different ways. When you compound that with systems that are inexplicable, you may not be able to tell that the bias is operating. And if it is, you may have difficulty getting rid of it. But I'm not convinced that that is... So I, I, take, I take that those dangers really seriously. And the examples that you give are really good ones. It would be perfectly reasonable from my point of view, to say, okay, maybe we don't want machine learning to be sentencing uh, convicted criminals to jail terms for all the reasons that people bring up, starting with the systemic bias that the, the data that they're learning from um, contains. But then there are other issues as well, including the importance of things that are probably hard to program into a system like leniency. Um, so that's fine. If we want to say, no, don't want to use it there. On the other hand, if it turns out, and in one study it did, I wouldn't make too much of it, but that the sentences that are being suggested by machine learning recommendation systems uh, in the judicial system, if it turns out that those sentences are actually exhibit less bias than the sentences that are being given out by human judges, then maybe we ought to think about whether there's a role for AI in that system. Taking over from the judge, uh, that's, you know, that seems pretty far-fetched. Hmm. Uh, flagging to the judge that, oh, do you know that, that your sentences are really out of skew with fair judges, non-racist judges? You might want to consider that. That might be <laughs> useful for, uh, you know. Um, I, but I think these are really, really, I, I, we're gonna have, oh, I'm sorry, I need to say a couple of things about this. Yeah. So long. We need to, we, we're gonna have to puzzle through in a social and political and moral way 
where we want to use these systems. And I, we absolutely have to be open, as increasingly I think people are, to the possibility that there are places where this stuff needs to be carefully constrained or just not used because there's real damage. There's real damage that can be uh, done with it. But there are other ways of judging whether a system is behaving fairly, living up to our human standards of fairness. And if it's not, there are other ways other than insisting on explicability to getting these systems within the constraints of fairness and other moral principles that we, that we hold dear. For example, I say, I'm sorry, I say this because there is increasing uh, sort of a mantra coming from regulators in various parts of the world that these systems need to be explicable. They need to be transparent. We need, uh, we need transparent algorithms. Or I, I don't even, I, I truly believe that the people who are demanding this in many instances, not all of them, of course, the regulators have no idea what an algorithm is. Because I'm not sure what a transparent, I don't think I really know what a transparent algorithm is when you come right down to it. Very often the problem is going to be with the data, um, not with the algorithm. Nevertheless, so if, if you're designing a system of autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, using machine learning, uh, which is how it's done, uh, in order to drive down the, um, primarily to die, drive, drive down the number of fatalities on the road. Uh, but there are a series of other things you'd also like them to accomplish, like fuel efficiency. Um, you want to have some minimal level of comfort for passengers because otherwise they won't get in the cars and you won't get the benefits that you, you won't get the fuel efficiency and the, and the safety efficiency and, and so forth. There's a whole set of things you want to accomplish. You can, if these systems uh, work best as black boxes, let's just pretend that's the case. You can judge, you can, you know, insist on transparency, not necessarily of the algorithms, but about the, of the outcomes. You want to know how many people are killed, how many near misses were there, all the different sorts of metrics that you would want. Um, these machines presumably can, well, they can't do all of them because they're broader issues. Nevertheless, you can, you can look at the effects of what they're doing in a systemic way, and you can require that, that these systems publish those metrics. You can insist, if we wanted to, we could insist on the uh, makers telling us what the cars are optimized for. They'll all be optimized for fewer deaths on the highway. Let's just assume that. But how important is it to the machine learning system to uh, drive down um, the environmental impact versus, say, comfort versus, say, speed? Um, and it could well be that a car, an AV, that is delivering its goods or its passengers as quickly as possible, because that's something generally we want, economically we almost always want that, that that requires uh, less fuel efficiency than if they drove 20 miles an hour. So we could at least ask the manufacturers to tell us what the things are, are optimized for, what are the values that it's trying to achieve, and then what the results are. And if, if the... AVs go out of, you know, they're not achieving what they, we've agreed they should be optimized for, then they're a faulty product and they need to be fixed. But as with most, most faulty products, I am not aware, but my understanding, we get a new batch of them and we test them to see if the product's been solved. We don't always, anyway, insist on getting an explanation of what went wrong. 
if it, and you could do the same thing with a with AVs. If the manufacturer fixes them, then we don't need to know. I don't think we don't need to know what how they tuned it in order to to fix it. We do not demand transparency you know, from all of our products. And if and this this again is something that computer scientists I respect tell me is a false trade-off. But if it is the case in some instances that explicability, keeping the systems explicable will also damage their efficiency in achieving the goals we set for them. Imagine just for the moment that that's the case. Then we can, uh, we may well want to, let me put it like this. Uh, and I think many machine learning people are just going to tear their hair out when I say this, but imagine if they will. Only we'll if they're listening. <laughs> you know, imagine that making autonomous vehicles completely explicable. The price of that is less fuel efficiency and more highway deaths. And maybe not all that many more. It's just a thousand more. Like there, there are 35 to 40,000 highway deaths a year in the U.S. So you know, not a thousand dead people. Are you willing, would we be willing to sacrifice a thousand people in order to get a type of uh, transparency and explicability that may not be useful to us? If an inexplicable system can save a thousand lives, would we be willing to do it? I, 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 I you know, I, I have my feelings about it, but this is the sort of question that uh, should be settled, should be settled in public. I think it would be going to be hard to sell the public on another thousand people dead because we want theoretical explicability. If there are, if there are other ways of achieving the goals that we want. Uh, so one more thing about, if you don't mind, about explicability. You're the guest. Well, but you're the host. Please. You are the boss of me. Please. But now you're begging. That's now. That's just, there's no dignity here anymore. <laughs> so, sorry. Um, so there's, I think, a really good idea comes from the uh, um, Oxford uh, Internet Institute and also at the Brooklyn Klein Center. There have been people who have written a paper along the same lines, I think simultaneous, that says, here's a really good technique for uh, making systems explicable without having to expose all of the inner workings, uh, which vendors may want, manufacturers may want to do for trade secret reasons and because it's complex. So it's really simple. In many instances, if you want to know if the system is rejecting loans because of the gender of the applicant, then feed in the same, uh, the same applications, but change only one datum, change the gender. And if these loans that were rejected, because when they were marked as female coming from a woman, now are accepted because they're coming from a man, you have pretty good counterfactual evidence that, yeah, this system is noticing gender and is uh, penalizing uh, women for it. They're clearly not acceptable. That seems like a really good idea to me. You know, it seems pretty straightforward. But it seems to me that that's not an explanation. It, it is in some sense an explanation. I'm sorry, let me be really careful. So, yeah, it's next. Why did it turn you down? Because you're a woman. That is, you know, it's a bad reason, but it's a good explanation. But it's not an explanation in the sense that my book is thinking about them. Because the book is about, fundamentally, I think, it's about how we tend to understand ourselves in terms of the technology, the tools that we use. We've been doing this for a long time. Certainly have done it in the computer age where we suddenly started looking like computers. And we did it in the steam age when we started uh, feeling under pressure and letting off steam and having to vent and all this sort of stuff. And it goes back, goes back further than that. So 
if we are understanding ourselves in machine learning terms, the relevant inexplicability of black box AI has to do with the number of variables and the insanely complex interrelationships among them. That's the new model that replaces the old model that says, oh, there's all this crazy stuff that's happening, little pieces of dust and big planet, but it's all governed by a relative handful of relatively simple laws. The new model doesn't deny that, but says, you know, here's, here's how it works. You have thousands, tens of thousands, millions of pieces of data and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of variables, of features, an insane number of connections, some of which very small change will trigger a very large effect. Usually not, but sometimes that happens. Sometimes it will take uh, many small factors turn out to have a, a, a determinative or, or even large effect. That's what the world is like. An explanation, uh, finding out that one of the variables was gender and that caused the system to flip, that's really important. That does exactly what we generally want an explanation to do, um, which is an explanation is a tool. It's not a state of the world. It's not, it's not a feature of the world. An explanation is, is a tool that we use to do something. Um, the, if you get a flat tire, the explanation is there was a nail in it. That's, a, that's an excellent explanation. But that nail only got there because of a huge set of other factors that had to be in place that range from the road that you were on, whatever the circumstances were that put the nail there, facts like pointy objects penetrate better than dull ones and that uh, metal will penetrate uh, rubber tires, that there's gravity. I mean, basically everything in the universe had to happen for you to get that flat tire. The reason we pick on the nail as the sine qua non, as the there but for the nail, and that's the explanation. The reason we pick on the nail is that's the thing we can change. We can't change gravity. We can't change the past that we happened to be on this road where the nail was or the past that brought the nail onto the road. That's all part. Those are all equal parts of the explanation. They are part of they are how the world works. But we take the nail as the explanation because that's the thing that we can change to fix the tire. Explanations are tools. And so if flipping the gender on the application causes the system to give another output, you have, in that classic sense of explanation, you have come up with the explanation. The thing that you can, you can change, the, the, the one, one thing, and now the system's going to be better. You've gotten rid of that problem. But it's not an explanation in the sense of now we understand how the system works. And that sense of inexplicability that we, we can't understand how this system works, even if it is just a handful of laws, because we can't see how they're operating. There's just too much stuff. It's too complex. There's too many tiny little pieces, each one of which is connected to every, in the world to everything else. That's the world that we live in. That world is not explainable except in the sense when we need a tool. And the, the, I know this is a painful thing to say. This actually comes pretty much straight out of Heidegger. <laughs> when the sort of explanations that we use as tools, the nail, they illuminate the nail and they cast into the shadows everything else. Because you're working on the nail. You're not thinking about, oh, damn that gravity. If only there wasn't gravity. 
curse you, gravity. You're focusing on the nail. Explanations highlight the one thing that you can change and unhighlight, so to speak, cast into the shadow, at least for the moment, everything else. Hmm. There's a price to explanations. So, you know, given that you, if we're going to oversimplify your extraordinarily complex instance of the world as David Weinberger into some sort of tidy biographical narrative, then, um, you know, you got your start as a philosophy professor. So it feels right to conclude this investigation with a question about, you know, if, if all of this is about how our changing technological environment changes the way that we see the world, the way that we understand ourselves, when all of this is said and done, you know, when your average person has intimately acquainted themselves with the everyday chaos and complexity, when the, and it seems to me, you know, to sort of preclude or spoil this a little bit, at least my, you know, my piece of it, it seems as though the networked nature of information and experience you know, the, the internet as a medium for human psychological and cultural enactment, that it leads to, you know, these nonlinear apprehensions of not just the interaction of parts and, you know, they're sort of the weights of their relative influence on one another, but an understanding of the self and of the changes of things, of, of time itself as moving out of like a linear and into a nonlinear space. And I'm, I'm curious how you think it will be uh, for people say in another 50 years when this, when this paradigm has really saturated us as, I mean, as it seems likely, I mean, you've got this, this whole chapter on progress, our notion of progress itself becoming nonlinear, which is really uh, apparent in the, uh, great William Gibson quote about how the future is just distributed unevenly, you know? So it's like, uh, I think we're still operating on a modern sense of the, you know, my identity with my beginning, middle and end and my past causes my present, which will cause my future. And that is like you're saying that is a, that's an explanation that, occludes all of these other things that we know to be true. So how is that understanding of who we are and, and where we are on a, a, you know, a lands, if, if it's, I don't know if it's even appropriate to talk about time as a landscape, but where do you imagine this might find a new equilibrium? What's the new steady paradigm for the next interval before the next major technological disruption? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, ah, how would I know? <laughs> I mean, it's a damn good question. Um, there it is. So, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't mean that is. Uh, I, I mean it completely literally. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I would be happy if we are entering an era and. I, and, you know, I think we are. I, I, don't, I can't make predictions. I don't pretend to make predictions. I'm interested in trying to understand ways in which our understanding has already changed or is, you know, in the process of changing, but unevenly distributed. Um, and 
if we are getting more comfortable with particulars than we have been, appreciating the dust as much as the sort of the pattern that the dust makes, then I think that's healthy. If, as has been happening in many fields, including in philosophy uh, and economics and psychology and, 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 uh, if we're coming to accept that the brain is an evolutionary artifact, is not necessarily initially and primarily attuned to telling us the truth as it is so much as it is to enabling us to survive and have more, more babies, um, then I think that's really healthy. I, I think we are in a Copernican moment in terms of our understanding of who we are in the universe, going from thinking that we have a God-given or by nature or whatever sense of uh, ability to understand how the world works in its inner truth. I think that would be, it's very healthy for us to back away from that. Hmm. Um, I think some you know, modesty and awe is, that's the other side of modesty is you get more awe. Scientists are incredibly modest. They're, you know, uh, at least in my experience, certainly theoretically, but also in my experience, um, they're really aware of the limitations of what they know and the possibility that they're wrong. It's sort of falsifiability is, I think, for many of us is at the, at the root of science. If we are able to both continue to search for, for the truth as best we can, but also recognize that we're small creatures in, in a very large universe that was not made for us and to which we do not have special access, I think that's really healthy. And if even, even embracing the idea that thought is something that we do with our hands as well as with our minds, with our tools, as well as with our brains, I think rating and clarifying um, idea. This is the Andy Clark idea. Beyond that, uh, so I'll say one thing beyond that, which is the, the thing that has fascinated, fascinated me, sort of the through line, which I, you know, I, didn't follow on purpose, but it seemed to have come back to over and over again, starting with, you know, I'll say college, is in what may be a sort of a politically motivated fascination with structures that are loosely bound, in which there is multiple connections that are characterized not by the individuality of the entities, but by the connections among them. And that is certainly true for me politically, but in terms of structures of the world, I'm always more attracted to those structures, which doesn't mean that they're there or I'm right. It's just for whatever reason. Um, and so the Internet, my early interest in the Internet was, was absolutely driven, uh, I think unknowingly, by my fascination and desire for such a world. And seeing that repeated in the sorts of models that machine learning makes for itself continues for me that fascination. If from this evolution we get to the point where we value, we, we see truth, value, and beauty in connections um, as opposed to taking the individual as the fundamental unit of matter of, of well, not a matter, but politically and um, in terms of definitions and meaning, then I, I, I will be, I, then I will be very happy. I won't be around to see it, but I would, would have been very happy. What would you offer as advice, if you'll indulge me here, and um, 
imagine that this episode is being rediscovered by some archaeologist in another couple centuries. What do you consider evergreen advice? Whether you know you find it uniquely, you know, the, the possibly quaint, you know, from from that perspective, centuries hence, or or whether you think that this is something that will stand out as time-tested wisdom like what would what is the thing that you standing here now in 2019 would offer to someone no matter when they're listening (sighs) (laughs) i you know um i i i I wouldn't um I'll (laughs) i'll give transient advice one is, and I think that we've already come to this point. I think we've passed through the point generally in, in the population of looking at the internet and, and digital stuff and saying, fleeing from the overload and worrying about uh, there's too much. And I think we have passed through that sort of panic and that we are now uh, in the, we are now demanding more and more information, sort of shamelessly, shamelessly recognizing that we can never have enough information and we're getting really, uh, which I think is a really wonderful thing, especially because it's less reductive than trying to find the generalizations alike. So I, I first thing is go for information overload, you know, <laughs> car- carbo load as much as you can while you can. And the second thing is something I, I've actually told my children. I have not given them much advice, but I have told them that, Everything is interesting if looked at at the right level of detail. And I think this is something that the internet makes manifest because you can find, you can go to whatever level of detail you want. Whereas in the past, you were really sort of stuck at whatever was being, you know, written in the newspaper or in the magazines. We now know, I think many, many of us have found out that everything's interesting at the right level of detail. If it's not interesting, you're just, you're at the, at the wrong scale. Hmm. That is actually, I think, evergreen and, and potent. And maybe, I, maybe I'm dating myself to the unborn archaeologists, revealing my, my hopelessly archaic perspective. But that seems like, that seems like a, at least a, uh, a good place to, to put a pin in what I think this year would call wise. So, David, thank I really you, appreciate this. I, I'm, thank you for, for being so willing to hop on through the uh the recommendation of a a mutual friend and and for writing this book which i obviously recommend to everybody thank you so much for doing this but by the way can we i was assuming that the future archaeologists would be robots is that right well i mean you know one of the things that we we talk about a lot on this show is you know, just I think along with laws, theories, and models, where we may be loosening our grip on other types of concepts, and I think the concept of of the human is one of those those areas that's becoming more and more nebulous. You know, the more that we we adopt a, a kind of a cybernetic perspective on the human as merely the the sort of nexus of all of these uncountable, minute inputs then we start looking more and more like an incalculably complex machine, 
just as we're starting to learn that in order to make a machine with the sophistication of a human being, you have to apply evolutionary processes to it. It can't really just be designed. So I think that these two things are converging. And, it, and it, you know, the, the human or robot question may be just puzzlingly alien to somebody in another 200 years. <laughs> can I recommend, I know we're, we're technically already ended, but can I recommend a book to you on that very topic? Yeah, please. Um, it's called Reengineering Humanity by Brett Frischman and Evan Selinger, which is, is in many ways at odds with what um, my book does. But it's a, it's a, really, it's a really good book. Reengineering Humanity. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, David. I'll, I'll leave that in because I love making reading recommendations for folks. And so thanks for giving us that extra little cherry on top. <laughs> my, my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, these are, you ask incredibly difficult questions. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's the right question. So they're the right question. Thanks for listening to future fossils. This podcast is a part of the mind pod network along with numerous other excellent programs go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all if you'd like to help support future fossils consider giving this show a five-star itunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations for more episodes show notes copious extras including music art future fossils coloring book and book club and more visit patreon.com slash michael garfield <laughs>